like to invite you to open your Bibles with me. We're going to read this morning um, Genesis 15 and 16, and this afternoon we will read Genesis 17. Um, these sermons are part of a series of sermons that I originally preached in my home congregation in St. George a couple of years ago on the life of Abraham. And um, today we will focus, this morning we will focus on God coming to Abram, uh, renewing the covenant promises. I'm presuming that most of you are familiar with the story of Abraham. We're introduced to him at the end of Genesis 11. At that time, he is a 75-year-old moon worshiper um, in Ur of the Chaldees. God calls him and his family and promises him, uh, provides a covenant promise that has three parts, essentially. One, I will bring you to the land. It will give you a land, the land of Israel. Secondly, I'll make of you a great nation. And thirdly, through you all the nations of the world will be blessed, which is a promise, of course, that Messiah would come through Abram's seed. When we come to Genesis 15, uh, we are about 10 years approximately after this original call. Abram has left Ur of the Chaldees. He has come to the land of Israel. He has settled there with Lot, his nephew, and the Lord has blessed them richly, economically. In the previous chapter, we had an account of four powers, superpowers of the time, coming and taking Lot and Abraham, being blessed by God and pursuing after them and being able to bring Lot safely back to his own land. A remarkable display of God's power in what humanly would seem a very unlikely outcome of battle. And we pick up the reading now at Genesis 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for four hundred years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, 
You shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Peritites, and the Rephaim, the Amorites and the Canaanites, the Girgashites and the Jebusites. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, that it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. And Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from, and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring, so they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant, and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his king's kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Bir Lahaya Royai, which lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. May God bless both the reading and the exposition of his word. As we read the book of Genesis and follow through, we see indeed that the thread that holds the stories together is a thread of God's promise. God came to Abram when he was still in Ur of the Chaldees, and said, follow me, and I will give you land, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. Abraham was called to a life of radical obedience. And in that, he had to undertake what humanly would be described as very risky ventures in obedience to God. 
And as we read the book of Genesis with New Testament eyes, we are reminded by the book of Hebrews that this is a journey of faith. Indeed, Abraham is cited to us in Hebrews 11 as one of the heroes of the faith. And so was Lot in the New Testament. We read that Lot vexed his righteous soul at the evil that was around him. And yet, as we read the narrative and we understand it to be a journey of faith, we sometimes are surprised at the depths of sin, at the challenges of life, and frankly, at the choices made by Abram and Sarai. And so, in our sermon this morning, we want to look at these two chapters. We will do so at a very high level. There are many sermons that could be preached if we are to dig in depth on this. this. Rather, I want to pull a larger thread through these sermons and then follow it up this evening with God's follow-up in many ways as we have it in Genesis 17. And so we will consider our text under the theme, When God's Promises Overwhelm. First of all, we'll see that there are honest questions that Abram has. Secondly, we'll see that there are instructive pictures that God provides. And finally, we will consider gospel answers that are also relevant for the church today. Our text begins with God coming to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, he says. Well, if God comes to Abram and tells him to fear not, it must mean that Abram is afraid. What's he afraid of? It says, after these things, if we go back one chapter to Genesis 14, as I just mentioned, Abram has been able to go and to defeat Cato-Laimer and his forces. Earthly, humanly speaking, the superpowers of the day should have crushed Abram and his armies, and yet in a miraculous way, God provided for him. And now he has come back. Is Abram really afraid of his enemies, having just experienced such a remarkable sense of God's deliverance? Is it his physical safety that he's afraid of? Maybe it's a fear of uncertainty. Ten years have passed. God has promised I'll bring you to a land, and God delivered on that promise. He's here in this land, but it's a huge land. How is he going to defend it? I'm going to make you a great nation. Well, he still is childless. And he is, as the text indicates, beginning to think that, well, perhaps God is going to fulfill that promise through Eliezer, his servant. But there are questions. And certainly being blessed by the nations of the world, those who bless you, I will bless, and those who curse you, I will curse. He's seen something of that, obviously, in the deliverance against the armies led by Cato Laimer. Nonetheless, there is understandably a sense of uncertainty. 
Let's also keep in mind that Abraham had come from a background of moon worship. It was a world in which there was a sense of spiritual powers and forces being all around them. And while Abraham had had an encounter with the true God, Yahweh, the covenant God, it is hard to believe that he had a mature understanding. He was very much a babe in grace in his understanding of knowledge of who God is. And so it stands to reason that Abraham is probably afraid of the uncertainty. The human heart hasn't changed. Satan tempted Abraham just like he tempts us. The devil has always gone around as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Wondering about the temptations, having seen some of the choices also of nephew Lot, seeking materialism, and moving towards the attractions of Sodom. Yes, we can understand why Abram's afraid, can't we? Even as we just look at his circumstances. And it's in the midst of these, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly what the context of his fear is, except that it's there. But it's in the context of that fear that God comes to him. God does not leave him or abandon him. God comes to him in the midst of the fear. And as we have the conversation between God and Abram through various visions, we see some specific questions that Abram have. The first is a question of confusion. Verse 2, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer. Of Damascus. Abram's respectful in terms of his address to God. He addresses him as, O Lord God. And yet he's very direct. To translate into just everyday English, God, you promised me a son, and here I am ten years later, and look at my age, look at Sarah's age. How in the world is this going to happen? Have you forgotten your promise, God? I'm confused. Abram's not alone in being confused by the promises of God. We can go through the Psalms, and we can see the psalmist often laying questions. Why, Lord, why? Maybe this morning you and I come with our own questions about circumstances in our lives that just don't make sense to us. I think there's a tremendous comfort when we go turn to the pages of scriptures and we see the saints of old like Abraham in the midst of the struggles of faith being very honest with God. He doesn't pretend the problem doesn't exist. He brings it very directly and he prays God's word and God's promises which seemed unfulfilled back to him. Do you and I do that? When God's promises come and they don't, you know, we have circumstances in our lives and we, we have a sense that God's not living up to his word, what do we do with that? Do we mope and complain about it? Does it cause us to have questions about God? 
Or do we take the promises of God in light of our circumstances and lay it before God as Abraham does here? Seeking God's answer, praying his word. Yes, there is a question of confusion. There is also a question of confidence. We have that in verse 8, don't we? He said, O Lord, God... God answers in verse 7, I'm the Lord who brought you out of the river of the Chaldees to give you this land to possess. But Abram said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? God has just told him. He had told him before and he just told him again. But Abram feels he needs more. He's not alone in the Bible, is he? At the birth of when the angel came to Zechariah in the temple prior, announcing the fact that Elizabeth would have a baby, Zechariah didn't believe the word of God. He was made unable to speak for a year, both as a rebuke for his unbelief, but also as a confirmation of the promise. Gideon puts out a fleece asking for God's confirmation. Indeed, God's answer in our text confirms for us that there is a difference between questions that are rooted in trust but uncertainty and those that are seeking confirmation. It is a different thing to doubt God than it is to follow up and to ask God to confirm. So yes, it is clear from our text, Abram's confused. He questions, he has a lack of confidence, but he's also impatient. We have the account in Genesis 15 in which God comes with the ceremony. We'll get to that in a few moments. But when that's all done, we come to Genesis 16. When that ceremony is over, God has answered Abraham's concerns with a reconfirmation of a covenant using the ceremonial rituals that were common to that culture. And now God, that confirmation is over, and as we turn to Genesis 16, now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go in to my servant, Hagar. And he, Abram heeded the voice of Sarai, we read. Abram and Sarai decide to put, to help God out a little bit. God has made these promises. They have questioned these promises. God has reconfirmed these promises. And Abram and Sarai look at each other and say, well, I guess we need to do what we need to do in order to help God fulfill his promises. He's prevented me, Sarah says, from having a child go into Hagar. I guess that's how the child will be born. It's important to note that this question follows God's answer and vision to Abraham's questions. The life of faith, also in the life of Abraham, is a life of ups and downs. We could deal separately with this, but here's another example of, on the one hand, Abraham receiving God's promises and believing them, and then falling into doubt and self-reliant unbelief while he's waiting for the fulfillment. And humanly, we understand, don't we? 
It's been a decade. And actually, it's going to be 14 years between the original promise and when Isaac is eventually born. God works and promises in infinite ways that sometimes our finite minds have a hard time wrapping themselves around. In a sermon on this passage, our Kent Hughes uses words like shortcutting, scheming, expediency. Now we should note that the polygamy that is proposed by Sarai in terms of Abraham ta- Abram taking Hagar reads differently to us as a New Testament audience than it would have in that time. Indeed, among the neighbors that Abram would have had, polygamy would have been common. Households were understood to be headed by someone, and then all of the, not only his primary wife, but all of his mistresses, his servants, they all would have been under his concern and he could do with them as he pleased. The important thing was not faithfulness, but legacy. It was a patriarchal society in which the emphasis was on male heirs and what they had. And everything in the household was meant to serve that purpose. And within that context, within that cultural context, the proposal for Abram to take Hagar made logical sense. It was a culturally normal thing. We read it in terms of our understanding of marriage between one man and one woman. And we read it in the context of infidelity and breaking of the marriage trough and trust. And indeed, God's laws are permanent, and the foundation of marriage is found in Genesis with Adam and Eve, and yet it is true historically that for the first many centuries there was quite a different understanding. It took some time before the full understanding of marriage as it is biblically presented was fully appreciated and lived consistently among God's people. Yes, We can even say that Sarai was motivated by good. She was sacrificing her own interest. Clearly, it was regardless of whatever human relationships, and there's every evidence that Abram loved Sarai and they had a healthy husband-wife relationship. She would have understood that sharing her husband would not have been ideal. And yet, for the sake of the better good, for the sake of having an heir, for the sake of God's promises being fulfilled, she says, God has has prevented me. For the sake of the good, she's sacrificing herself and wanting to see an heir born. Rather than waiting for God's time, Abram and Sarah take it into their own hands. And yet, sin always has its consequences, and it does here, too. There's a broken relationship between Hagar and Sarai. They no longer can deal with each other. The order of the household is disruptive. Sarai's sin leads to Abram's sin. Their collective sin has its victims also in Hagar and Ishmael and Hagar leaves. 
As we read this story, various other Old Testament stories, it's good to remind ourselves that God's children always have faced challenging situations. And as God's providence unfolds in lives, also the lives that affect the congregation gathered here at Riverside, on this July morning in 2023, undoubtedly there are situations that we don't fully understand. They don't make sense to us in light of God's promises and in light of God's word. There's instruction in this passage. On the one hand, it's okay. We don't need to feel guilty about the questions. We can bring our questions to God, and God answers, as we'll see in a moment, God answers the questions that Abram and Sarah has. But there's also a warning to trust God, to look up, to depend upon God to carry out his plan, and not to take it into our own hands with our divine assistance plans made up of our own strategies. It's not the existence of questions that is our problem. We live in a broken world and our questions are real. Abram and Sarah brought their questions to the Lord. And how did God answer those questions? We see that in our second point. There are three instructive pictures, really two and a third that I'll add at the the end here because it does fill it in. But there are two Instructive pictures especially that we're drawn attention to. God understands the fact that we, although are gifted with rationality, we're made in the image of God and we can understand and reason, our reasons are finite. There's many things that go beyond. And we are not simply creatures of reason. Modern science tells us that perhaps 10% of the data that we take in is consciously processed by our brain. We are creatures of habit. We learn in many different ways. And that was already true of Abram and Sarah. And so God responds with a picture. Go outside, he tells Abraham. Genesis 15, verse 5. Look toward the heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them so shall your offspring be. Now, Abram was pretty literate in terms of the stars. He had spent the first 75 years of his life as a moon worshiper. He was quite familiar with the patterns of the eastern sky. I've never been there, but I understand that the eastern sky is even more clear One geographer says the stars here seem to hang luminously in space. You can feel and almost reach up and touch them. Abram stands and he looks and sees the vast expanse of God's stars created. And it becomes clear to him. What becomes clear to him? Did he all of a sudden, by looking at the stars, understand exactly how that promised child was going to be born? No. And yet we are told in verse 6, Abram believed the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. We'll focus on this text, especially in our third point. But 
the essence is here. Abram, he looked at the sky, he looked at the stars, and he believed God. It's not that he understood how God was going to carry out his promises, but he was giving a renewed understanding of who God was. God, the creator of the stars, the Almighty One. Don't you and I often need reminders of who God is? So often in the midst of trials, we're inclined to look down at the trials and try to figure out by looking down at our circumstances. But what's the answer for Abram in the midst of his trials? Not to look down, but to look up. To see the stars and to see the God who made them. God understands our finiteness. It's one of the reasons why he not only gives us his word, he also gives us sacraments. Sacraments which show us by bread and wine and water the story of the gospel. Not only does God use the stars, he also uses an ancient ritual. And we have that account in the second half of chapter 15. He tells Abram to bring a heifer, a goat, ram, turtle, dove, and pigeon. Well, there's no way Abram would have known this, but we as New Testament readers of this passage are struck by the choice of the five animals. These are the five animals that Moses will call out in terms of the animals that need to be given in sacrifices in the various Levitical laws. And so there is continuity here between the promise given to Abraham and the thread that is pulled through the Scriptures The ritual, the ceremony of cutting an animal in two and walking through it and reciting your agreement through it was the way in ancient cultures of confirming a covenant. In the same way as when we have a legal document, you buy a house, you engage in some document of significant legal consequence, it's not just good enough to have your signature, you've got to go to a notary public and they stamp it and they make it official. They document and verify the promise that is made. They have nothing to say about the contents of the promise. Their role is to authenticate the seriousness of the promise so that in the case there's future dispute about it, there is no question that the agreement was truly made. In our culture, we use a notary public. In a Muslim culture, you will go and you will make your promises in front, both holding on to the beard of a Muslim cleric. Some places that happens even to this day. Well, in the Middle Eastern times in which this text takes place, the way of confirming uh, an agreement was to take an animal, to cut it in two, to stand in the midst of the animal, to recite both sides of the covenant, to repeat the promises, And essentially you were saying that if I break my word, let me be like this animal and cut in two. It was like swearing an oath on your life. Well, God asked Abram to bring him these animals. And he cuts them in half. 
what happens before the opportunity for the ceremony happens is that birds of prey come and want to pick at it. We need to be careful. This is real history. It's provided for us as history. You can read many commentaries that go at great length about the symbolism here of God seeking, of, of the devil seeking to pick away at the promises of God and to prevent our belief in it. All of that is, is, has its valid place. Given our time and given the focus of the text, I think there's plenty here for us just to take it as the history as recorded. Abraham has to drive away the birds of prey while he waits for God's instruction. I wonder whether or not there is implicit in this a rebuke to Abram. The last time I spoke to you, I repeated the promise. And you had questions. You weren't certain about it. You didn't fully believe it. I have to come again. You need patience. You need to drive away the birds that are there. And then Abram falls in a deep sleep. God provides a picture. And what happens? Do God and Abraham walk together through? No, God himself stands. It's as if we have a foreshadowing of the New Testament thing. I can swear by no other than myself. God swears by himself and he repeats the covenant promises. It's a one-sided covenant of sovereign grace. There's a third picture that's here. We have the picture of the stars. We have the picture of the, rit the ritual of the Middle Eastern covenant verification process. It's slightly different, but as we turn to chapter 16, we have an indirect speaking to Abram by the angel coming to Hagar. We read the story together. You know what happens. Abram goes into Hagar. Hagar becomes, is expecting. She becomes, feels superior to, to Sarai, and the relationship is, is fraught, and Abraham says... So Sarai, essentially she's your servant, do with her as she wants, and Hagar ends up running away. And there she is, helpless, a pregnant woman in a culture that did not provide generously for those on the margins, alone. Clearly in a state of desperation. But here God shows his character. He comes through the angel of the Lord, an Old Testament personification of the second person of the Trinity. He comes to poor Hagar in a miserable situation of not of her own making. And God gives her a blessing. Indeed, the experience of the psalmist, the Psalm 139, where can I go from your presence if I take the wings of morning? And dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand will hold me. God provides words of comfort to Hagar. Your son Ishmael is going to be born. Ishmael means God hears. God hears not just Abram, God hears Hagar. What we see in all of these pictures is the fact that God is not indifferent. God doesn't say, well, I made my promise, now you just 
Don't worry about it, I'll take care of it, and he's indifferent to our experiences. No, we see in the very fact that God comes to Abram, that God comes to Hagar. He comes to his people in the midst of their trials, even when they don't have it all figured out. And how does he come? He comes with gospel answers. We indeed miss the heart of the text if we focus only on the trials and experiences of Abraham, because this text fundamentally isn't about Abraham, is it? It's about God and the faithfulness of his covenant promises and the realization of those promises in the life of Abraham. And we have in chapter 15, verse 6, what some have called the most important verse in the Bible. Abram believed the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. Genesis 15, verse 6 sets the stage for the doctrine of justification by faith for the first time. This is the first verse of the Bible that explicitly speaks of faith. He believes righteousness and justification. It was counted to him for righteousness. Now, these are grand truths. Dr. James Boyce uses seven sermons on the passage that I'm covering this morning, three on just this verse. Let me just point out a couple of features that prompted this verse to be very prominent also in the New Testament. In fact, Romans 4 is an extended exposition of Genesis 15, verse 6. The direct words of Genesis 15, verse 6, Abraham believed and it was counted to him for righteousness, are repeated three times. The word that we have counted for righteous, brought to the account of another. It's not Abram's righteousness. It's God's righteousness that would be achieved through the fulfillment of the promise that is counted as Abraham's righteousness. Indeed, 11 times the parallel word in Greek appears in Romans 4. And the key point is this. Abraham's account is clear in the sight of God. When God is coming to Abram in the midst of all of his trouble, he's not coming to Abraham as a sinner who needs to be brought right with God. He is coming to him as the recipient of God's covenant promise. And even though the son was not born, even though Messiah had not yet come, the righteousness that Christ would have is already in Genesis 15 put on Abram's account. And God sees Abraham as righteous. And he comes to deal with him as one that is righteous. Oh, we realize from our reading of the text there's still lots of sin and weakness in Abram's life, but God counts him as righteous. In Romans 4, Paul compares David and Abram. And both cases links it back to God's word. Their righteousness is not what they have done. 
No, their righteousness is indeed the fulfillment of the covenant promise that was exemplified by the stars of the heaven and the metaphor of the ritual. Abraham believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. That is, in the sight of God, Abram's a righteous man. And in making his promise, God is looking forward to that day of perfect communion with Abram's seed, just as he had perfect communion with Adam and Eve in the garden. Genesis 3, verses 6 to 9, we read that just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, in you the nations shall be blessed. So then all those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. You see the glory of the gospel? This isn't just to Abraham. This is to you and to me, according to Galatians. All the Gentiles, all those who are of faith believed. The gospel was given to Abraham so that the gospel could be given indeed to you and to me. And yes, Paul highlights the role of faith. And certainly in Genesis 15 to 6, we have that. He believed the Lord and it counted to him for righteousness. It does not say it was counted to him for righteousness because he believed. I trust we know our catechism well enough that faith is the means, it's not the basis of our salvation. God has accomplished salvation fully and completely. And those who by faith receive it are heirs of eternal life and are restored to full communion with him. Even so that when they are in the midst of difficult circumstances like we find Abram and Sarai in our text, they can know that their salvation is secure with God. Oh, it's true, different saints have different degrees of knowledge. Old Testament like saints like Abram understand less than New Testament saints who have the full revelation of God. And yet, the gospel is the same for Abram as it is for you, as it is for all nations in the world. It doesn't say how much Abram believed or exactly what Abram believed. No, the focus is on the object of his belief. He believed in the context of God promising. And he believed that God who promised would be faithful to his promises, even if in his circumstances he had to throw up his hands and say, I have no idea how. What we have here is a confirmation of the promise of God. We have here an emphasis on the essential nature of faith. But it's interesting in the New Testament, not only does Romans 4 and Galatians cite this passage, so does James 2. A famous tax passage in James that talks about the relationship between faith and works. James in James 2.23 cites Genesis 15.6. And the point is there that good works are a consequence of faith. Good works are those that proceed from a true faith. 
While in this chapter we see more of Abram's doubt and questions, certainly Abram's life as a whole is a confirmation of the truth that we have given to us in James 2. Our time is coming to an end. Let me try to draw this together with three questions of application as we consider what this might mean for us today. I want to suggest to you, first of all, this is a passage of tremendous comfort for the people of God walking in the midst of challenge and affliction. The Bible does not present the way of faith as a way down a rosy path with no difficulties. And perhaps there's somebody who's come to church this morning who knows that in all too real of a way. All of us do, to a degree or other. We can take comfort from the very real exposition of God's word of the saints that are highlighted in Hebrews 11 as the heroes of the faith. At the end of the day, being no different than you and I, being sinners in need of grace and having what they have because of grace. And so it helps us to understand our circumstances and to deal with our expectations. And we have the encouragement in our passage that we can take our challenges to God, that we can be open with Him, that we don't have to pretend we've got it all together, that everything's all going wonderfully. Do you and I not need to acknowledge before God that perhaps a little more of an awareness of our own humility and our own finiteness would be beneficial for our spiritual lives? How much is it that even in our prayers we feel compelled sometimes to come to God as if we have it all together and we have it all figured out? Abram didn't. Why, Lord? You made these promises and I don't seem to see the realization in my life. We have the lesson in our passage that as long as we look down at our problems, we end up in difficulties. And we are even tempted as Abram and Sarah, Sarai to, to come up with our own divine assistance plans, to help God carry out his promises and not have the patience. But when we look up, when we see the stars, when we're reminded of the certainty of God's promise that using the most significant rituals God could come from the culture with which Abram was familiar. He, he condescends to use those means to communicate to Abram. I really mean it. This is more certain than any business deal you've ever done. I myself will walk in the midst of the animals. I'm going to deliver. First of all, we can take comfort that our own circumstances are not unusual, no matter how unique they may be. This is the story of the life of faith, as it laid, is laid out in the scriptures. But secondly, we see instruction in what to do with the challenges of life. Where do you take your questions? Where do you take your frustrations? Did you bring them to the Lord as did Abram? 
as did Gideon who sought a fleece, but brought it to the Lord? Or do you take things into your own hands? Oh, there are dangers of using man-made schemes rather than patiently trusting in God's promises. We need to understand God's promises and timelines are totally different than ours. Did you catch as God repeated his covenant promise in chapter 15, the second part, the Lord said to Abram, know for certain your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not there and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. Yes, Abram, I've made my promises and my promises are real, but you're actually gonna die before you see them realize. 400 years, Israel's gonna go to Egypt. It's not till after that that the promises will be fulfilled. Do you and I have a big picture of what God is doing in the world? Are we not so often consumed with the self-importance of our own age? God created the world with a purpose. And he is carrying out that plan. And at the center of that plan is the gathering of the bride of Christ, the church. The Heidelberg Catechism, we confess that from the beginning to the end of time, God gathers, defends, and preserves for himself a church chosen to everlasting life. I fear sometimes that even in our orthodoxy, we sometimes fall short of dealing with all of the scriptures. How easy it is to deal with the scriptures as if it starts in Genesis 3. Starts with the fall, and that allows us to explain sin and all the consequences. Brings us to the cross, and then ends in Revelations 20 with all the dark times. But what we effectively have is a two-chapter gospel, fall and redemption with the cross at the middle. And that sounds orthodox, doesn't it? Christ-centered, cross-centered, but that's not the scriptures. The scriptures are more. The scriptures don't start at Genesis 3. They start at Genesis 1. God made the world, and he saw it was very good, and it is there for his honor and for his glory. And yes, Genesis 3 is there and man fell. But God came with his covenant already in Genesis 3, 15. That the, servant, the serpent's going to be crushed. And the promise of the gospel is there and it's repeated in Genesis 12 and it's repeated here in Genesis 15. The promise to Abraham is repeated over and over again. And the end of history is not the darkness of the world and Christ coming again. No, it's the new heavens and the new earth in which God's people are going to commune perfectly with him. We're going to live with him in fellowship. That's the fulfillment of the covenant. We have a rich and glorious gospel serving a rich and glorious God who made the stars who is Yahweh, the Almighty One. We will see this afternoon, he even introduces himself with a new name, El Shaddai. I am the all-powerful one. And in the midst of our questions, 
In the midst of the confusion of our daily life, we can take our problems to that God. Oh, use the means. God answers us in different ways, even in this passage. He answered Abram with words. He answered him with preachers. He answered them with his presence. As we'll see this afternoon, when it's all done, Abram still doesn't have it all figured out. And he'll come again. Yes, first of all, your problems are real, child of God. The scriptures teach us to expect that. Secondly, there is a place to take them. There's a place to bring them. You are in the hands of Almighty God. And what's the basis for all of that? Well, certainly we have that in our text, don't we? Abraham believed, and it was counted to him for righteousness. If you were to die this afternoon, before we have our next service, and appear before the throne of God, what right do you have to be received before God? Can you say, well, I've been a pretty good, I was at church this morning, God. I've been a pretty good Christian all my life. I've done my best. Romans 3.20, therefore by the law, deeds of the flesh, no, law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Or maybe you come before the throne of God and say, I really don't know. I really don't dare. Romans 3.19, the law says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped, all the world may be guilty before God. The law demands an answer. It won't do to have no answer. But what's the answer? Abram believed and it was counted to him for righteousness. It's not me, God. It's the righteousness of Christ. I can stand before God because the covenant promises given to Abraham were fulfilled. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live with the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. What a gospel. What a truth call to worship this morning, said, come in the marketplace of, pay, of grace and buy without money and without price. The gospel is brought to you this morning. The righteousness of Christ is yours for believing. Trust in him. And he indeed will bring, Abra as he has brought Abraham into full communion with answers to his questions, also will bring you regardless of the challenges you face. Let's pray together. Lord, we come, having opened your word, and Lord, seeing in the real-life struggles of Abraham of old, Lord, that you deal so patiently with him. You do not dismiss him, but Lord, you come again and again with your covenant promises. And we know from your word that you fulfill those covenant promises, and so it is that the gospel can be brought once again also this morning. Oh, Lord, work with your spirit. Take the empty words of man and make them alive in the hearts of your people. And if there are those among us who 
are strangers to grace, who still have dead hearts. So, Lord, make them alive through the regenerating power of your Spirit. We'll give you all the honor and the glory and the praise. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.